You're listening to Rowan Radio On Demand. Download more podcasts at rowanradio.com. The following program does not represent the views or opinions of the staff or administration of Rowan University or Rowan Radio. 89.7 WGLS-FM. Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM proudly presents Studio 89.7. This talk program focuses on newsmakers, celebrities, and authors. And now, here's your host, Philadelphia radio veteran, Paul Perello. My next guest is here to talk about uh, his new movie, getting a lot of attention these days. The name of the movie is Escape from Tomorrow. And if anyone has gone to a theme park, you probably can uh, sympathize a lot with the character of Jim in this movie. Jim is played by Roy Abramson. Roy is a native of the uh, Philadelphia area growing up in Levittown. I want to welcome Roy uh, back to Philadelphia to talk about this movie, Escape from tomorrow. Thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you. I said this movie is getting a lot of buzz. It is being called the most provocative film from the Sundance Film Festival. Wow. It's provocative on so many different levels, one of which is how the movie was shot. Number two, the setting which this movie was shot. The theme of the movie, your character Jim and his family go on vacation to a theme park. We'll, we'll go nameless <laughs> unless you want to bring it up. I'll bring it up. Uh, Secrets out. It's, it secret it out. Starts, it's, it starts with a D and ends with an Isney. Let's <laughs> just put it that way. Tell me a little bit about, I guess, what intrigued you? What made you seize the opportunity, want to be involved in Escape from Tomorrow? Uh, well, first of all, it's very rare when you're an actor in L.A. that someone comes and says, um, hey, I want you to be a lead in a movie. Um, so I had to audition for it. A friend of mine had auditioned for a role in it, and he said it was a, it was a very low-budget uh, little thing, and I've done a million of these kind of things, and they usually end up going nowhere. Mm -hmm. And I was on my way. My friend said, you know, there was a role in it that was right for me, the lead. And <clears throat> so... I said, well, tell the, your friend, the casting director, about me. And so he did. And, and they brought me in. And I went to some little junky theater on Hollywood Boulevard. And, you know, that it didn't seem like, oh, God, what is, you know, I was like, what is this? You know, here I am again at some little place auditioning for some little project. And, you know, you slug away for years in Hollywood. I've been there, you know, since the early 90s after doing um, you know, years of uh, regional theater. And so here I was again. I thought, what is this? And I went in and I read I read the scenes, which I liked. And then the director told me where it was going to be shot and would I be okay with that? You know, it would be shot without permits at Disney World and Disneyland. There I said it. So it's a secret's out. So, um, so I... I said, yeah, I do it. He, he, you know, it wasn't, I didn't really think about it that much because after years of doing theater and film and TV and, you know, when someone says, you know, it's when it's a lead in a film, you kind of grab it. Steven Spielberg is not knocking on my door. I live in the Valley in LA now and I have a wife and two kids. And, you know, honestly, I was between jobs, as they say, <laughs> most actors, people don't realize this. Most actors are usually between jobs. You're usually not working. Mm -hmm. you have, most of your time is spent looking for work or trying to go to an audition or going to auditions. Um, so when someone offered me a lead in a film and it was shooting in these two theme parks, you know, and it was exciting, you know, and then I read the script and I really liked it because it was very weird and dark and strange and funny. Mm -hmm. And really, I thought it was a funnier film than it was going to end up being. I thought it was more of a black comedy, you sure. know, like something like Ben Stiller would do or right. something. I thought of it like that. But that's, it turned out to be more of an art film, really. And, you know, that's why Sundance picked it up and, and ran with it, because I think it deals with a lot of themes that are 
you know, deeper themes than any kind of just plain old black comedy. It deals with some, you know, themes of loss and getting older and middle age and, and corporate power. It, it, you know, it's got a lot going on in it. I, I'm going to talk about your yeah. character, Jim, because you take your family on this family vacation to mm-hmm. uh, this uh, theme park. Uh, unbeknownst to your family, mm-hmm. you get a call that uh, your employer has terminated your work as you're on this on yeah. this trip. Right. That's the very first scene. So it's not giving much away. It's like the movie opens with me losing my job. And many of these <clears> people, <throat> many people that visit these theme parks are going for for vacation, but there's a, a tremendous amount of escapism that comes with it. I'm going to leave the world behind. Yes. I'm going to enter mm-hmm. those magical gates and for the next three, four, five, how many days you're there, I'm leaving the world outside. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to, I'm going to uh, live in this, in this fantasy land. But your character, Jim, and even the kids and your wife in the movie are overcome after a while by all of the, the reality of the theme park existence, which really isn't all that. We, we go there to escape the themes of what's going on in the world. You go there and you you begin to realize that princesses that are living there in the theme park and the rides and everything is made to look that way, but yeah. in reality, it really isn't. No, it's it, the whole the whole idea is that first of all, you're paying a lot of money, sure, <laughs> just to get in the gates. You're paying mm-hmm. a lot of money, and then um, you know any theme park spends a lot of its time separating you from the rest of your money, and and you are really just what you said. You are paying. To you know, they they build themselves as the happiest place on earth. I mean, that's their that's the motto. So part of the theme of the movie is, you know, what is this guy who is basically a miserable guy? He's not happy in his life. How do you? That that's the conflict, right? That's a conflict in sure. the movie right there. Is he is he is a very unhappy guy in his marriage, in his life, at this happiest place on earth? And how do you how do you deal with that? Is what this character goes through. And there was one review that called this movie genre-defying, and I I like that review because I I always have trouble describing the movie because it is kind of combines a few genres. It has elements of Lolita. It has elements, you know, because I get infatuated with these younger girls. It has elements of Death in Venice, which is a great movie. I really think it's a lot more like Death in Venice, which is a movie about a guy who is obsessed. He's actually an older man who's dying inside. He's dying of tuberculosis in Death in Venice, and he gets infatuated with this guy, a boy who's in between boyhood and manhood. It's kind of, it it more represents the loss of youth than, than sexuality. It's almost like he's, 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 he's bemoaning his loss of youth. And that's what my character is. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm searching for that lost freedom and youth. And that's what those younger girls that I'm getting kind of stocky with. That's what they, that's what they represent is the loss of my freedom and the loss of my youth. And I think any middle-aged guy would understand that um, probably more than women. uh, I think it's just my theory. And and these are themes that don't necessarily play out on a park attraction. I mean, you're not taking a corner at, you know, at the uh, you know at the castle, and you're going to find a ride that's going to deal with some of these themes, like you know, uh, oh, here's the ride for the middle-aged man who is uh, conflicted with his family and his right. life and his career. There's no ride there, but many of the themes that your character and many other uh, people go through at the park prevalent. I mean, mm-hmm. all you have to do is walk through the theme park, 
at about middle of the day towards the end of the day, and you can see the expression on many people's yeah, faces. Yeah, it gets ugly. And, yeah, it, it gets... does get, get, get ugly, and, and you know, hearing kids scream, and who wants this, and who wants that, so. Yeah, well, I heard a woman say something like, it was like uh, to her daughter, she says, if you don't have a good time, damn it, I am going to smack your face. You know, it was like, I, I, I was shocked, you know, yeah. but that's that's kind of what goes on in these places. You, you go with this high expectation, you spend a ton of money. Hell, look, I've been with my family there. I am... I'm miserable by the time I get when I've spent when I get the tram out of the parking lot. I'm like it's taken an hour and I'm angry already. So by the time you do a whole day and you then there's the pressure to ride every single ride and you want to get and and so that pressure kind of he, he starts going down the rabbit hole. This my character in the movie, he's, he's, his mind starts melting a bit uh, a lot and <laughs> that, that's really what the theme of the movie is: is that he's unraveling during mm-hmm. this whole trip in the happiest place on earth and and yet uh this movie is made it uh it gets critical uh praise at at sundance and then it went to ebert fest too by the way roger ebert it was one of the last films that roger ebert picked i went to ebert fest this past year and i was given an award by his wife uh the golden thumb there's actually a golden cast of roger ebert's thumbs up that his wife um, uh, gives the people in the films there. And there were 12 films there, and Jack Black was there with a film called Bernie, mm-hmm. and Tilda Swinton was mm-hmm. in a film called Julia there. And so he picked 12 I was very proud that he picked this as one of those ones that, you know, is, is a fascinating film, he thought, I guess, before he passed. I, I'm, I'm suspecting that some of those other films were made in the traditional way in that they got the necessary permits and permissions in order to film their yeah. movies, well, th- I suspect. Yeah, well, th- this movie, you could not... I mean, he, the director could not go to Disney and say, hey, can I film a movie on your property? The answer would have been no. Right. Especially a movie with these kind of weird, dark themes. So when I went to the audition, the director just said to me, are you willing to do this? I said, sure. And then the process started. So the, the director and cinematographer actually made nine trips to both theme parks over a period of a year or two before they even started principal photography because they, they had to figure out where to shoot it, where the light would be. Mm-hmm. They actually did a, and it's like an old-fashioned cinematography thing of a, with a compass, like how do you figure out where the light is at a certain time of day to bounce off your face. And and uh, they, they planned every shot. They'd walk through the movie nine times before they, because they couldn't waste time in the parks. They sure. brought us to, we were in Disney World for 11 days. We were in Disneyland for um, I think two weeks. And then we, about 20% of the movies actually filmed in, in um, a movie studio. We use a place called Occidental Studios in Los Angeles. And then a week in a, in a hotel, where, which doubled as the hotel room interior scenes. Mm-hmm. And also the swimming pool scenes were all done at that hotel because you couldn't bring, you know, tons of extras and, you know, you couldn't do a swimming pool scene at Disney. Right. So. And yet all this time that is spent in the production of this film you go, you and the other cast members and the director, mm-hmm. go pretty much unnoticed off the yeah. radar screen. Yes, we had we, we he he bought year passes for everyone. That includes the cameraman. That includes the kids in the movie. There's two two children. Their mothers were with them the whole time, the whole shoot. They were with us in the park. So he was buying I don't know twelve to fourteen passes for everybody at both parks. And the way we went undetected was simply you know you have a pass to get in. And you get in, and the cameramen, they look through their bags. They were using Canon DL5 cameras, which were just, they look like regular cameras, you know, right. the kind of camera you'd shoot a model with. They don't look like film, big film cameras or anything. They check their bags. We all go in. We tried not to go in in one giant clump. That right. would have looked a little odd. We all took kind of different entrances. We rehearsed the scenes in the hotel room 
uh, in Randy, our director's room, before we went, every day we'd meet in the hotel room, we'd go to the costume room. There was a separate room in each hotel he rented for the costume girls that had all our wardrobe for the whole film. Right. You know, because there's a lot of wardrobe with all these characters. And uh, makeup, that was also the makeup room. They never went in the park. They kept them in, in the hotels. And so we get wardrobe, then we go to Randy's room, we do the lines, we'd go over the scene because we couldn't have scripts in the park. If someone, God forbid, left a script in the park and someone found this movie script, there would be your a cover's big, blown. Yeah, right? her cover's yeah. blown. So that's how we did that. We'd rehearse the scene, and then it, they were on iPhones. So we would, you know, if I forgot my lines, I would go to Randy, the director, and say, hey, what was that line? And he would pull it up on his iPhone. So we go in the park, and our sound was done in both theme parks. We had a wired mic. He didn't want to use wireless because wireless might interfere with the park's wireless. So he had a wired mic. It went to a simple Olympus tape recorder in our pockets that was running all day. They would put fresh batteries in in the morning, and it simply ran all day. So I, I remember after a couple of days, I was thinking, I'm going to the bathroom. I'm going, I better undo this. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so I, I started undoing it, and then I'd plug it back in when I'd come out of the bathroom. And after a while, Randy, our director, caught on. He said, no, no, you got, we, I, we can't risk you forgetting to plug in your sound again in your tape recorder. So he would duct tape it so I couldn't undo it. You know. <laughs> so um, anyway, that's how we did all the sound. And it surprisingly came out, most of the sound came out very good. I had like two days of... ADR looping to do after to do voices and coughs or whatever I had to do that didn't match. And um, so that's how the sound was done in the parks. And then these, so when they're shooting you, and then, you know, there are, oh. you know, many scenes, for instance, on, on uh, rides. On, on rides. There's, there's one scene where your character is obviously mm-hmm. very agitated when you're on that ride that yeah. plays that little ditty. Yeah, of, that was a, it's a small world. Right, yeah. yeah. And to the, to the, other guests that are on the same boat as you, it's looking like someone's taking a family home mm-hmm. video, right? Yeah. But you're actually acting out this scene in this movie. Yes. And now the, 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 there were two cameramen that each had one of those deep Canon cameras. And one, one would be, let's say if we rode the ride, one would be in front of me on the car in front of me, or one would be behind me. So they were getting shots behind and in front. And... The people next to those cameramen didn't know that they were shooting us as a movie, or they were, thought they were maybe just taking pictures of their family. Like I said, a lot of times it felt like we were just kind of hiding in plain sight. It's almost like a Hitchcock movie where the where the killer is hiding in plain sight, and you can't tell because they're right there in public. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what it felt like filming this movie. It's like you're, you're not talking loud. There's no giant booms. There's no lighting. There's not 20 people. Like when you do a TV show, there's like 30 people standing around on sets with booms and sets and gaffers and sound you know it's it's obvious what you're doing when you see drive by in LA you see movies being shot all the time but here nobody knew and these camera guys you know they were just LA camera guys at one point we did uh, get caught and I think it's because we, we sh- we're shooting and we got away but I'll, I'll tell you that story later but we we were shooting too early in the morning it was 9 a.m. Okay. when we went into Disneyland it was our last week of shooting and it was too sparse. Like the crowd, the crowd hadn't gotten there yet. Mm-hmm. And we were doing a scene where we were going into the park and uh, entering the park. The family was entering the turnstile. And a guy, and we, then we shot it again. A director would come up and he would say, he would whisper to me, we'd go, okay, go out and do it again and be in this order or whatever, you know, put the kids in front. And then we did it again. And a guy came up to me from, uh, with a Disney security badge and with a big smile. And he says, hi, sir. Excuse me, um, why did you come in the park twice in seven minutes? Oh. Because we had left to go do the shot again, which is not, the shot's not even in the movie anymore, which makes it even uh, more ironic. So I said, oh, well, I left the sunscreen outside, and my wife and I had to go get the sunscreen and put it on the kids, you know, because it's a long day. And, and then I went to leave, and he said, excuse me, sir, are you a celebrity? 
and I, I stopped and I was like, did, had he, had he seen my, my two lines on CSI or something, you know, had he, had he seen my, my, my reporter role on, and I said, why? And he said, well, there's paparazzi following you around taking pictures of you. And I said, Papa, and then I realized he was talking about our camera guys. Right, right. And he said, because we have a, I said, paparazzi, why would they be, he, well, we have a certain protocol for celebrities in the theme park. They don't go through the normal way. So that's why we thought, you know, I said, no, I'm not a celebrity. You know, my wife, we were doing this bad acting at that time. My wife, my movie wife, Elena Schuber, and I were, were, were going, wow, who do you think we are? Hey, honey, you think we're, hey, wow, who do you, you think I'm Tom Cruise? You know, we were doing that kind of bad acting. And uh, he led us into the park and he had us wait there. And then I realized then I had the sound equipment on. Mm. And I also realized I had, we had different IDs. It just occurred to me at that moment, it hadn't before, that we all have different last names. All my two kids are from different families. And, you know, so I realized I had to get rid of the IDs because I thought that would be the next thing they would check. And the sound was an obvious thing the, the tape recorder in my pocket to yeah. a wire. So I, I asked him if I can go to the bathroom. And I said, my son needs to go to the bathroom. That's what I said. My son needs to go to the bathroom. Can I take him? I knew he couldn't say no to that. I went in, I took the sound equipment off, and I didn't know what to do with it because I realized if I threw it away, I could be throwing away like a week of sound and ruining this guy's movie that we had. We were near the end of the shoot. We had only three days left to shoot. We had just checked in the hotels at Disneyland in Anaheim the night before. So I went to throw it away, and then I, I said, oh, shoot. I put it in my pocket. I, I put, I, and then I went, no, they'll check there. And uh, then I put it in my tube sock. We had these, you know, the big dad tube socks. So I took mine and put one, mine in one tube sock. And then I put his in the other tube sock and my son's. And the wife had gone in the bathroom to get away too. And as we came out, a production assistant walked by me very fast and he said, get in the white van in the parking lot, go to the production van in the parking lot. He goes, get out of the park, get out of the park. You know, he's just like whispering, that's like a mantra as he passed by me like in a spy movie. And I realized, uh-oh, this is getting very serious because the cameraman had gone. Mm-hmm. I found out later they rode the Matterhorn for an hour. <laughs> so they, they had disappeared. The direct- I didn't see anyone else around except this production assistant who always wore a goofy hat walked by me saying that. And so we kind of, the guy's back was towards us and... A parade came by at the same time, was distracting, and I looked at my wife, and we just walked to the turnstiles, ran out of the park, like at a full gallop, jumped in the production van, and, went, and then that's where the director was. He was already in the van, and as we sped away, he said, okay, go, everyone go back to the hotels, check out, we're, go, we're leaving. We're just, you know, and we did see a undercover security guy taking down the license plate of the van as we sped away. That was when I realized, oh, wow, this was really, I remember thinking at the time, it's weird, I, wow, if this ever gets anywhere, I remember telling him, well, I'll tell this on Jay Leno someday. Exactly. You know, it's like I never thought I really would actually be telling this story to anyone but friends and family. Yeah. So it's kind of funny that it actually happened. But I remember thinking, wow, I'm going to tell this on Leno someday. <laughs> it was a, well, it goes to show you that uh, there is security, even oh, though yeah. security is uh, pretty non-existent when you walk through the parks. Well, you see the occasional guard walking you, by. But you do. Not- and, and the hardest part of filming actually what, in the park was the fireworks scene where I'm running looking for my daughter. And even before that, I'm in a place where I'm looking for my daughter near the ride Soren in the daylight. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, uh-oh, I'm frantically looking and sometimes mouthing. Sometimes I would just mouth the word Sarah when I'm looking for my daughter because I didn't want to scream Sarah. Because the one thing you don't want to be doing is saying, hey, I lost someone in the theme park. Exactly, you know, they yeah. would be there. Disney security is very tight and they would be there in a second to help. But uh, I remember having to mouth that you know, and, and re-loop that word in, you know, when because I couldn't shout out my daughter's name. Right. And it was, so that was, a, that was a really fine line. I remember I'm looking very worried. I'm running frantically around looking for my little daughter who in the movie gets lost. And that was like, I thought, uh-oh, if someone sees this, this is really where it can get hairy.
the movie then is done. It's completed. It goes to Sundance. The Disney company really hasn't, and I like the uh, the trailer online that opens with uh, the following trailer has not been approved not by been the Walt right, right. Disney Company. Uh, it, it's kind of funny, but uh, at no point did did Disney try to stop. You know what? Once the project's done. No, his, the director's greatest fear was that it would get to see, he, he really thought he was going to be showing this out of the back of a van at little film festivals and stuff. He, that's really what he thought. This was a story that he says, he tells in interviews, he says, um, there's a story he felt he had to make because it's kind of his, his childhood was going to Disney World. He was a Disney fanatic when he was a kid. His dad would take him to Disney World. His parents were divorced. And so when he would visit his father... All his vacations were in Disney World. So it's kind of his rosebud, like mm-hmm. in Citizen Kane. It's his it's his childhood Christmas memory that is really dear and deep to him. And also, but mixed in, obviously, with a mixed relationship with his father. If you see the relationship with the father, with me in the movie and my son, it's a very strained relationship. I won't want to get, give anything away, but it's, right. it's not the best of father-son relationships. And I think that's what was the impetus. So when he went there, he had this idea... Of It's just a story he says he had to tell, but this was the only place he could tell it. He couldn't figure out another way to tell this story. And originally he was going to do it with some friends mm-hmm. and have them act. And, and it just kind of grew. His friends weren't good actors, so he hired some actors, hired a casting director, and then he hired a camera. He was going to shoot it himself, but he realized he couldn't do all that. So he hired a cameraman, then he needed an assistant director. And the whole project kind of slowly grew and originally was budgeted for 250000 And I think it ended up being... 650000 because he had to go to Korea to edit it. He went three times, and I asked him, I said, why'd you go oh, to Korea? God. Yeah. Well, he said, first of all, he didn't want to edit it in L.A. and have some guy in a Burbank editing house going, oh, my, texting his friend going, oh, my God, I'm editing a movie that was shot illegally. He didn't want the word out before it came out. So I would go to a commercial audition, and I remember being at a commercial audition before Sundance, and the commercial casting director going, Hey, man, I heard all about that Disney movie you were in. And the producers were there. And all of a sudden, the producers go, what Disney movie? Like, I, and I was going, shh, shh don't, ixnay on the Disney. You know, like, like he, I was like looking at him. Like, and he goes, oh, sorry. Like, I was not allowed to talk about it. It had to be super secret. He, I got a call from the director. Please don't say anything to anyone. And so his greatest fear was that it would never be shown right. at Sundance. Like, the night it was shown at Sundance, he thought there would be helicopters coming in the next day going, the cease and desist, lawyers say you cannot. So, the, you know, for what is called the most litigious company on the planet, Disney, they they surprisingly have done absolutely nothing. And, and we think why is because, I, I don't know why, but I think why is because they just decided they didn't want to give it more publicity and look like a Goliath against a David. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's also a counter on the uh, the homepage for Escape from uh, Tomorrow yeah. that says, uh, you know, so many days and I'm we sorry. still haven't been sued by, you know, right. the, the Disney company. Well, it, it is being represented by a guy named John Sloss in New York who runs a company called Synetic. And he's a, he's a, he's a sales agent agent, lawyer, distributor for the movie. He's like the biggest lawyer in show business for that this kind of problem. He did a movie called Exit Through the Gift Shop, mm-hmm. which is about the artist Banksy. And that was PDA's movie last year. It's called Producer Director Associates is the arm that produced this movie. So they're used to these kind of legal problem movies. And they, I'm sure they, and they went through the movie and vetted it. There is the clause of fair use, whether this can be sued or not, whether, mm-hmm. you know, you, you like the director says, you know, Disney is so part of our DNA. Mm-hmm. It's almost like he says, I heard him say at a talk back recently, like more people have been to Disney World and Disneyland than they've been to our state, you know, Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. You know, what I mean, it's like if there's a if there's a heart of our 
nation, he thinks it's more in Disneyland and Disney World than it is in our nation's capital. He said, so he feels the, almost the obligation to comment on how powerful and how much it is part of our DNA. Not in a totally bad way. I mean, he loved Disney. I, I grew up watching. I mean, when you hear, you know, da, 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 you know, that brings back a memory sure. of sitting on your parents' carpet watching a Disney movie, you know. So how has this whole experience then shaped you? I mean, you, it was a job. You made a movie. Mm-hmm. Did did anybody, yourself included, expect all of this publicity and no. all of this attention from this independent black and white film that was never really, I guess, realized at the beginning? No, I can say for me, absolutely not. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned the black and white, because first, when I thought it was going to be done at Disney, I thought the same thing. Ne- this will never see the light of day. And then I remember the director telling me at our first read through, he's going to shoot it in black and white. I remember going, oh, my God, like. I love black and white movies, but I came home. To, I remember telling my wife, now it'll really never be seen. I said, before it was never going to be seen, now there's no chance. Because who, who makes a black and white movie? Yeah. You know, this is before The Artist even came out. Mm-hmm. And that's supposed to be black and white because that's what it dealt with. Mm-hmm. But this was before that. We were filming in 2010. And the reason it took so long, he was waiting for the composer. The music in the movie is gorgeous. And there's a Golden Globe-nominated composer who composed the music. His name is Abel Korzeniowski. He's a Polish composer who's... He wrote the music for the John Ford movie, A Single Man, mm-hmm. and he also wrote a Madonna movie, and he's also, he just wrote the movie, the score for Romeo and Juliet that just mm-hmm. came out. So he's like, he offered to do this for nothing, and he was waiting. He had to, he actually turned down a Hollywood project to write the, if you've seen the movie, you see how gorgeous the mu- music is. It's almost a it's almost a character in the movie. Say you could say that, yeah. it's 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 really sweeping, beautiful score that kind of offsets the mundane, dark world of this family trying to have a good day in Disney World. My, my first audition back in LA from Sundance, well, once it got into Sundance, I realized, wow, this is going to be a big deal. So it kind of was a nice payoff after 25 years of what I call holding spears and Shakespeare plays. And right. you know, I mean, I've paid some serious dues, like a lot of actors have. I've done theater for zero money for months at a time, just to practice, just to, just to get to be a better actor. I've done a regional theater for many years. So it's like, it's finally nice to have a little recognition after you spend so much time trying to get it, mm-hmm. you know? So I came back to LA and I auditioned for a show called Franklin and Bash. And I remember when I went into this TNT, it's a TNT show, and I went into the audition for a guest star on the show. And I remember the casting director said, hey, I've been reading all about your movie in the LA Times when I came back. And, and all of a sudden, every producer's head in the room snapped to attention. And they said, what, what movie? What movie? And then she said, oh, the Sundance movie. And all of a sudden, they were all asking me questions, which is a very rare, rare experience when you're at an audition. You know, at a callback, there's probably 10 guys up for the role, and you do your job and you leave. You do your scene, you're done. But all of a sudden, all these directors, producers were asking all about the movie. They were asking the same questions you are. What was it filmed on? How did you do it? How did you get away with this? So it gave me an opportunity, and it was at that moment that I realized, wow, this could be good for me. You know what I mean? I, I'm getting that extra three minutes with a director or producer that I usually never get. This whole experience, I guess, reiterates or reinforces the fact that, you know, I mean, you, you got to be thinking that what if I would have said no to this movie? I almost did. I almost did not go to the callback. I'm glad you brought that up. I almost, I remember telling my wife it, the callback was on a Saturday. I was like, oh man, I got to go by kid's soccer game or whatever. I go, I'm not, how do I fit this in? I'm missing my, you know, I'm going to be late for a soccer game or something. And I thought, ah, I'm not even going to go. What's going to happen? I almost didn't go to the callback. So it just, my, my lesson for this, and and basically, is like I never turn down 
any audition because you never know what it's going to be. Sure. So, I mean, people always say, oh, you got to be in the right place, right time. But I always tell them, I'm in more places, more times than most of the actors I know that don't do this kind of thing. I know a lot of actors that wouldn't have even gone to this. Mm-hmm. So it has to do with, you know, stick-to-itiveness is, is a huge part of an acting career because you never know where that break might come. And I don't know. I mean, look, I drive limos in L.A. right now. Mm-hmm. I drive actually a lot of very famous TV stars and actors around. It's funny. They've all heard of the movie. So sometimes I have conversations with them about this film. And, you know, it's just... Uh, it's. I mean, I might be driving limos again. You know, in, in a year from now, I might be talking about. Yeah, I had a movie at Sunday. Yeah, I had, but I, I sure hope not. If there are students out there that want to make movies, if there are students out there that want to learn how to make movies, not saying this movie is a be all and end all how to make a movie, but it shows you that if you put your mind to it and you do your work and you do your due diligence, you can you could really execute a project like this. You know, when I first heard about the movie, I thought, well, they just you know slapped together a bunch of. Uh, home videos. But then in reading more and more about it, and you even talked about this, the fact that you rehearsed your lines and you rehearsed the scenes yeah. and that the you know the, the director uh, went out nine months ahead of time and scouted locations. Yeah, it actually went sure. to nine times. They went to both theme parks, nine different separate trips to, to, to do it. Yeah, he never, he never wanted this to look like a found footage movie or a home movie. And that's, I mean, that's not, that's only one of the reasons he did it in black and white. It gives a, a kind of a film noir fear, mm-hmm. feel to the whole movie. But he just never wanted it to look, that was the first thing he told a cinematographer, I don't want this to look like, you know, a found footage movie. He doesn't like, he wanted it to look like a real movie. And so that's, that's what he spent his time and money doing. Roy, I want to thank you again for being with us. Hey, thanks so much. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Studio 89.7, a monthly program that focuses on newsmakers, celebrities, and authors. Please tune in on the second Saturday of every month at 9 a.m. for another edition of Studio 89.7, only on Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM.